Hey, so uh, something kind of hit me Friday, and um, I had this thought, and I asked Amy, I said, I wonder where those letters are that we wrote to each other in college. And I kind of just had this brainstorm. In fact, it's kind of consumed us this weekend. We actually cleaned out the attic, which I know our, pre- our kids will appreciate. Uh, and there was uh, a pickup load that went to the dumpster at the church, if you want to dig through that, through our personal stuff today. Probably shouldn't have said that. But anyhow, uh, and then another pickup load to uh, uh, Second Blessings across the street. But um, uh, Friday night, or Friday afternoon late, I kind of went up there and I was scrummaging, rum, scrummaging, rummaging through boxes and came across the letters I had saved that Amy wrote me, and so we wrote letters while um, we sort of dated, and actually some of the letters were before we started dating, but the four years between uh, high school and getting married, and so we, uh, uh, I mean, there's a stack of them, and then I got on this kick, I thought, well, Saturday morning, it's like, no, we're going to hit this, we're going to find those other letters, and that led to throwing away a bunch of stuff, which was really good. But came across those letters, and we went through some of them. I mean, I don't know how many. There's dozens and dozens of them. So we read about a dozen and then went, okay. Anyhow, uh, some of it are kind of mundane things about life and what's going on. Uh, Some of it, well, some of it, let's just be honest, was really mushy. And um, I don't know what we're going to think. I hope we're dead when our kids read those letters because it's like, oh, Dad, that makes me sick. uh, some of them, interestingly enough, uh, so there were several themes that kind of interlaced in these letters, whether Amy was writing me or I was writing her, and some of it caught quite, a, interestingly enough, was kind of about our own spiritual walk and journey and where we were and what was going on in our lives. And I thought it was kind of hard to think back to that time, it's been so long ago, but to think about that. And um, <clears throat> But you know, kind of the interesting thing is, well, one of the interesting things for some of y'all is that we used to write letters, let's just be honest, Uh, and we would write in the letter, hey, I will call you Thursday night, but that was a big deal to make a phone call. You know, for Amy, it meant going into the hallway of Burt Dorm at Mary Harden Baylor and, you know, while the other girls listened on, you know, and making a phone call, or I had to call her at a certain time that she could answer the phone, and uh, it's kind of interesting, but we did write letters, and of course, the crazy thing is we saved those letters. Uh, over, I guess, four years, and uh, it's kind of interesting for us. Uh, they're valuable to us because they, they communicate not only our love for one another, but where we were and what was going on in our life. And I realized this morning that uh, we need to value and treasure God's book to us not just in the same way, in a greater way. That the amazing thought is that the God of the universe, our creator, inspired 66 books and um, not only compiled it, but uh, preserved it so that today we could look to it so that we would know what he thinks and what his plan and his purpose and what he has done in the past. And so 
2019, we set forth on the ambitious task of saying, let's look at the Bible in its entirety. Not from necessarily ground zero, but look at it from 30,000 feet. And what is it that the Bible says? What is the big picture? And what we are discovering is it's, 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 it's one story. Because God is the author. And he, each part of it, even though it's so different and we've learned that already, all of it is a part of his written, divine, inspired record to say, if you want to know what your life means, look to what I've written and I've preserved. And I, I would bring it back to us today to say, the only way you can make sense of what your life is in 2019 is to understand what the sovereign God of this universe has left for us to read so that we might know him and what life is really about. Uh, 2019, I've asked you to use your minds. I'm hoping you're using your minds. Uh, we've, we've put a... Uh, a reference sheet, uh, a sheet for you every week. These are also on our website. You can click on the sermon and there's a, a download. You can look at that sheet if you miss a Sunday. Uh, and I don't want this just to be school, but I think of what Paul wrote to Timothy. Now, this is, this is my old King James from the early 70s, the way I learned it. 2 Timothy 2.15, study, this is Old King James, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study. I would encourage you to apply your minds this year. I know that's kind of bad. That implies last year you didn't, and I don't expect you next year to use your minds. But this year, I would like for you to use your minds. Wouldn't it make sense that if God preserved his written record for us to know what life is all about and to know him, that we ought to apply our minds? Now, there's more. There's more than just knowing it in our minds. I understand that. But part of that is to know it in our minds. And to know who the major characters are. And, and I wish somehow in your mind, if, I wish that somehow today we, you know, you would apply yourself so that you would know the major characters of the Bible. So that when I begin to say books, you go, no, no, I kind of, I see where that fits in the picture and in the chronology. And that you would know Adam and Eve and Noah and your, in your brain you would be going through the book of Genesis and you would get to Abraham, and you would know that God promised him not only many descendants, but a land, and that his family would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And you would think of not only Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob. And you would think of the story of Joseph that leads them to Egypt for 430 years. And you, you can pick up in the book of Exodus and the story of Moses and the deliverance uh, from Egypt and their wanderings in the wilderness. And you know, and you get Numbers and Leviticus and Numbers. And then Deuteronomy at the end of that time in which they're at the, on the brink of the promised land and Moses dies and he, he passes the baton to Joshua. And you go through the book of Joshua and the, the conquest of the lands. And, and even though I don't expect you to know the dates for all these things, I want you to get a general understanding of what 
Uh, that is about not only the chronology of the Bible, but the characters of the Bible. And I, I would really like for you to know some geography that you could see in your brain as we go from Genesis to Joshua so far that you could see uh, Mesopotamia, the region that the story really begins between the Tigris and the Euphrates and comes to the land of Canaan and then to Egypt and uh, the Sinai Peninsula, Peninsula and modern-day Saudi Arabia and into the Promised Land. And I, I really, in the weeks to come, I, I want you to know the geography of the Holy Land. And, uh, and that, well, I don't know. It's, yeah, I don't know. I know some of you are more inclined that way than others. But I want, I want you to get the sense of the books and where they are. And we've already inserted the book of Job into the chronology of where Genesis is. Next Sunday, Byron will be preaching for Ruth. I will tell you that Ruth inserts in where we will be today in the book of Judges. That's where it fits chronologically. But maybe even more than that, I would want you to know the themes that God is not only creator, but he created us to have a relationship with him and that sin has affected every aspect. And then there is this story that is unfolding of the redemptive work of God as he's beginning to bring us back into relationship with him. And today's story will, will talk to us about that. But I hope and I want to challenge you that we don't lose focus of what it's about one big story to put the chronology and the geography and the themes together at least maybe in a way that you haven't before so that you could understand God's big story so that you could see where your story fits into his story hmm. brother brother Shane all I can do is exhort the brethren to apply their minds and it's kind of like education you can't make them learn anyhow it's worth it do it so when we come to the book of Judges today, <laughs> and I study that this week, I go, wait a second. This reminds me of something. When I study the book of Judges, and that it's about 350 years, and you can look at your timeline on your handout. Uh, it reminds me of the Wild West in America. It was a wild time. And the children of Israel had settled in the land. And we're going to talk about some of those things in a general way from 30,000 feet today. But from the time of Joshua settling the land till the time of Samuel, to me it was like that time period in America of the Wild West. In the 1800s in America, there was an expansion westward. And not only did explorers head west, but pioneers and prospectors and settlers. It was the time in American history of the gold rush and people rode horses and they rode by stagecoach. They even built the trains out west. In fact, our Texas history picks up about that time in many respects. It was the time of the Pony Express. Uh, the characters of the Wild West were uh, <clears throat> probably sealed in our minds, Brother Ted, from the big screen. Because many of the stories that many of us were raised with were stories of the Wild West. 
And the characters that were a part of that slice of American history, not only a time, but a place, the western United States, the frontier in the 1800s. It was a time that uh, civilization out west lacked law and order and structure. Uh, there were outlaws that were, became legends, like Billy the Kid, Jesse James, the Sundance Kid, even women like Belle Starr. There were also heroes that were immortalized on the big screen, um, like Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, Wild Bill Hitchcock, and women like Annie Oakley. Uh, it was a time that a lot of who we are as Americans was uh, woven into the fabric of, of our culture in America and this, this idea of the frontier. And, but really it's that, it's that aspect of the, <laughs> the lack of law and order Civilization was not structured in many respects in that time. And that's the best picture I can give you of a 30,000 foot view of the book and the time frame that's covered in the book of Judges. In fact, it's, it's summarized in the last verse of Judges. Quite honestly, I've preached a whole sermon just on this verse, but we won't this morning. The last verse in Judges, Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you want to know what the book of Judges is about, there it is. I think there's three other references in Judges where it says in those days there was no king. Um, it kind of tells you where we're heading in the story. The day is going to come. There is going to be a king who is going to establish order in their culture and their civilization. But in those days, there was no king. The children of Israel were, uh, in essence, a loose federation of 12 tribes that were only bound together by their common faith in history but they lacked order I want you to get that picture in your brain that Joshua brought them in and in 15 years time they conquer and they settle the land and there's these 12 tribes that are assigned um, sections of land in the land of Canaan and then we're gonna read it here in just a minute Joshua and that generation dies. You almost get this sense of people looking around and go, okay, what do we do now? There was no sense of who we are. There was no centralized organization, structure, or government. Which leads to the last part of that verse. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. <clears throat> I think of that word right because I used that word last Sunday in Joshua 
At the start of Joshua's ministry, God says to him, do not veer to the left or to the right. And we saw that last week that Joshua, of all the characters of the Bible, is this straight line guy that lives faithfully for God, does not, except for the one episode of the Gibeonites, does not go left, does not go right. He does it the way God says it. And when he comes to the end of his time, just like Moses had done in the book of Deuteronomy at the end of Joshua, Joshua says a lot of things, but he says to the people, do not veer left and do not veer right. Whatever God tells you to do, you just do that. We're going to read it here in just a minute. When that generation died, this verse, everyone began to do what was right in his own eyes. And we're going to see where that ends up today. It is an interesting slice in the story, the history um, I'll be honest with you, there are some wild things, Brother Barry, in the book of Joshua. Brother, I'm sorry, the book of Judges. I mean wild things. Uh, some of them, actually, I don't even want to tell you. But anyhow, <clears throat> I mean, there are, th th these sound like stories from the Wild West. That's when I read them, I'm going, wow, this is like, no, this is like something we would make a legend of in, in American history. I mean, you've got Shamgar, uh, Judges 3.31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. Shamgar was a bad dude. Now, he only gets one verse in the scripture. I'd take that one verse if that said that to Daryl Smith. No, I just took a, an ox goat. I just took out 600 of them. Anyhow, I'm that, that's kind of on the good side of wild that I'm talking about. Uh, you, get, you get some gory stuff, quite honestly. You get, uh, during the time of Deborah and Barak, um, Sisera, the general for the other side flees, and there's a lady who drives a tense peg through his brain. I mean, that's good stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's wild stuff. You, you come to Gideon and the story of basically having several thousand people, and God saying, no, it's too many. And eventually in the story, God gets it down to 300. I don't even know if they have weapons. They have a trumpet. They have a pitcher. And they have a torch for a light. And God uses that, the 300, to rout uh, the Midianites in that case. You've got this great story of Abimelech underneath this tower when this lady drops the upper millstone on his head. I'm telling you, this is some wild stuff. There's really some, some stuff that theologically we just kind of scratch our head and say, I don't, I don't know about that. But I'm telling you, it was just a wild time. Jephthah, one of the, the judges, makes a commitment to God that if God gives him victory, that the first person that comes out of his house, this isn't a happy, clappy story, first person that comes out of his house, he'll sacrifice to God, and it's his only daughter that comes out the house. Y'all, I, I, I don't know. We don't even have time to talk about Samson. 
We could spend weeks just talking about the wild stories for Samson, but just maybe the one story, the, the Philistine guys that, that cheat him out of his wife. And so what does Samson do? You remember this story? He catches 300 foxes. He ties them, their tails to each other, lights their tails on fire, and sends them out into the, the grain of the Philistines to burn up their crops. You're talking about a wild story. The end of his life, he pulls down the pillars of the house where he was entertaining the Philistines and he kills thousands of them, more in that episode than any others. And Brother Barry, I, we, if, if, unless you're 18 years of age, you don't even read, need to read the final chapters of this book. I mean, there's a story of wiping out a whole city and they need wives for that city and so they go to Jabesh I wrote this down. Jabesh Gilead. And um, they, they kill the men in this story. And they, they give the women, those who had not known a man, uh, to the Bethlehem, uh, actually the Benjamites. I'm sorry. Uh, those are the details I'm not going to cover. And if Rob Hughes were here, he, goes, he would say, but you forgot that, that story. That's my favorite story. We're not going to tell any more of those stories. That, that's your highlights. From the book of Judges. The interesting thing about the book of Judges is that we have a summary statement. And that's what I want to look at for just a few moments this morning. Of what, all, what connects all of those. And I want us to draw some, some conclusions for our own life. In Judges chapter 2, 10 through 19, the writer of Judges gives us a summary of what the rest of the book is about. And the pattern. And this is what it says. In Judges 2, verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. We'll come back to that. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asterisks. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them 
out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their doings nor from their stubborn way. Hmm. Kind of interesting. I don't know of another book in the Bible that's like this. But uh, the pattern of the stories is given for us in those early chapters. And there's, there's a cycle here. If we could, uh, Peyton, if we could show that, that cycle. And this is true for all of the judges. Uh, there, there's 12 judges. Um, six of them are only mentioned with one to three verses. Six of them are given lengthier treatment. But the story's the same. The sin of the people. The hand of God is lifted off of them. And God allows oppression to come from the outside. The oppression gets so bad, they turn to God and they cry out. That's the groanings that was mentioned here. God sends a judge. There were 12 of them. And they're delivered from the oppression. And there is a time of peace. Until they forget what God has done. They go back to their ways and the people sin. And oppression comes. And they eventually turn to God. God sends a deliverer and there comes a time of peace. Aren't you glad our lives don't look like that? Oh, I'm sorry. You know, in many respects, their story is our story, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. The interesting thing in the cycle to me is that the sin of the people <clears throat> relates to their worship of other gods. And specifically, and, and this is very important for the story as we move forward, Specifically, it is the Baals and the Asterisks. Uh, Baal is a male pagan god. Asterisk is a female god. Both of them are the gods that control fertility and primarily fertility in the agricultural realm or even animals, crops, they bring the rains, and these are the gods that the pagan peoples worship. Uh, many times, Baal. Baal is not a single god. It talks about the Baals. They believed in many gods, and so there may be Baal of Peor or Baal of wherever else. And the same would be true for the female god. They would, there would be different manifestations of this, but they are the male and female fertility gods. They are as counter... <laughs> the worship of the one true God as you could get. So that as a part of their religious practice, there was temple prostitution. They are fertility gods. We won't go into detail today. 
there was also child sacrifice that was involved. Make a mental note today. This is where it starts. And it will be a part of their story moving forward. Uh, And here's the reason why it became a part of their story. is because they had not been completely obedient to God in eliminating the Canaanites around them. I said that last week and I said, make a note. They went, they conquered the land, they possessed it. Well, you can read it in the first chapter of Judges. It's a whole list of the 12 tribes and who they didn't eliminate. They just allowed. It was partial obedience. Do you get it? They just they got to their homes and their lands and they thought, oh, well, we're just going to let them be in this little community, this little village, this little outpost. Uh, we're, just, we're not going to eliminate them from the land. And they were okay in the days of Joshua and those that followed him. But over time, those people and the gods they worshipped infiltrated into the descendants of Abraham. And those were the gods that those pagan peoples, the Canaanites, that they didn't eliminate, that's who they worshipped. And it didn't get them at first. But eventually, it did. And they began to intermarry, and they began to adopt the religious practices of the pagans because they were not completely obedient to what God had called them to do in eliminating the Canaanites. I want to pause at this point and tell you the same is true in our life, that partial obedience opens our lives to compromise. Partial obedience. Several weeks ago, we began to talk about God is into the details of our life. And sometimes we look at this area, that area, and we say, well, it doesn't matter. And that's what the Israelites would have said. Well, it doesn't really matter that there's this little community of Canaanites because they're not bothering us. Well, today they're not bothering us, but eventually they infiltrated and they influenced the Israelites. The same can be true in our lives when God identifies a detail of our life that does not line up with who he is and and his detailed standards of holiness that when we decide in our minds that partial obedience is far enough, I want you to know that we've opened up our lives for compromise. And given enough time, that will come back to pay dividends in our lives. The people fell into sin because they were partially obedient. Um, If we think of the cycle, uh, there is outside oppression that comes. And sometimes in the story, it's the Moabites. Sometimes it's the Midianites. The Philistines, it's different people that come to oppress them. God's hand, when sin comes, and let me tell you, there is nothing more offensive to a holy God, in fact, than to worship something else. In fact, when God was listing the Big Ten, you know, 
on Mount Sinai? Number one, you remember what it was? You shall have no other gods before me. That was number one. The one thing that offends God more than any, any other is for us to, to worship something other than him. His hand is lifted. He allows the outside oppression to come. When the pain in their lives got great enough, it says over and over, they cried out to God. They turned to God. They turned to God to deliver them. The same thing we do in our lives. And then God brought judges. God would raise up a person. And on your reference sheet, you see those 12. Uh, there's some other characters actually in the book of Judges, but those are the 12. It's interesting that uh, as you follow the story of the book of Judges, it, it moves geographically from the south to the north to the central, to the east, and to the west. And that's the way the judges are arranged. And it may have also be chronological, but there's a geographical pattern to those. God would raise up the leaders for that time that needed to deliver his children because they had cried out to God. He heard their groanings. The thing that strikes me is that, and I want you to understand, is that these deliverers were, were more or less regional characters. And that's why I gave you the south, north, central, east, and west. Because there was not a centralization of power among the 12 tribes. It was that this tribe was attacked by the Moabites, therefore God raised up this deliverer, and God delivered them, a section of the tribes, from the oppression of the enemy. And so the, the deliverers were, were, were not only regional or they were limited, but the reality is what we see in the, in the cycle is that their effects were temporary because what followed the deliverance by the judges was the time of peace. And, and sometimes it says, and, and Israel had peace or rest for 40 years. But then the next, the next verse is going to say, but the, the children of Israel sinned against God. And the cycle begins to go over because they forget the deliverance of God. But the reality is that the, is that the judges were limited in their scope and their effects were only temporary. And here's, here's the theological truth. That if we're just looking at what are the major truths and what is it that we learn from these stories, here it is, and you got to get this, when we are left to ourselves you got to get this. When we are left to ourselves, our sin nature takes over. When there was a judge and he said, hey, this is the way it's going to go, or there was this great campaign, we're going to rally and we're going to defeat the Philistines, the Moabites, the Midianites, whoever that is. Man, we were all gung-ho and we were all about Jesus and pep rallies and all that. We, we gung-ho. We serving God and God alone. God has delivered us. Amen. We writing psalms and, you know, stories of deliverance in, in the book of Judges. Man, it's all great. And then the time of peace came. And we began to get comfortable. This is what you want, I want you to understand. Theologically, what this teaches us if we are left to ourselves, our default is not righteousness. Our default is sin. If you leave Daryl Smith 
to himself long enough. That's where my life is going to go. Because that is my sin nature. I want you to understand that when sin came in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, way back weeks ago, it was not just that Adam and Eve sinned against God and their standing with him was destroyed. Something happened inside of them, it says in the scripture. I want you to know that their nature was infected by sin. Their nature was a sinful nature. And that's what I'm saying. If there is not some influence, some parameters, some structure, some order, all of us go to sin. That's why we come to the last verse of Judges, and it says, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you leave people to themselves, there's a political point here too, but we, we don't have time for that this morning. If you leave people to themselves, the default is not righteousness and goodness. It is sin because it is, is at the very core of our being. Do you understand that? And so when the time of peace came and enough time had passed, they forgot and their default was not to continue and to build on their righteousness, it was to fall back into sin. And so it is true for us that apart from the work of God in our lives, our default is sin, not righteousness. And so in the days of the judges, even the days of the king, we'll see this. You can set up the structures and the order. <clears throat> wow. I just need you to know it's not going to be enough. And they did fine during the structure and the order of the judges. But eventually sin is going to take over. And I know that sounds like a really downer theological truth today. But it's something we need to acknowledge. Here's part of what I want to say with, to you. If your faith is simply some lines you draw of morality, if you just say, oh, well, now, I, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, and you just create a legalistic, practice of what you consider to be in line with the holy God it won't be enough to change you I don't care how OCD you are Daryl Smith <laughs> I got some issues they just haven't been diagnosed yet uh, I don't care how self-disciplined you are Satan's going to find your weakness. Your sin nature is going to take over. And you give it long enough, you will go down. You know why? Because you're doing it in your own strength. And your inner nature has not been changed. That's what I see in the children of Israel. That's why the cycle in the book of Judges goes over and over. 
And they just keep repeating it. There's seven cycles of this story in the book of Judges. Given enough time, the default was sin, not righteousness. And it didn't really matter the structure, the organization, the religious practice, what they agreed upon. Eventually, sin was going to take them down. When left to ourselves, our sin nature takes over. I want you to know that from the days of the garden and the fall, that it was not just our standing with a holy God fell. It was that our nature was changed and we are by nature sinners and left to ourselves. That will be our default. And the judges, they helped for a time to curb that sin but it just keeps repeating itself the judges were limited and they were temporary <laughs> which leads me to my final point today where is our hope <laughs> Jesus and really a lot of the book of judges is about leadership and when the leaders are there, things are going pretty well. We're, we're setting some parameters. But ultimately in the story, I'm just telling you where we're heading. There is one who is coming, Jesus. Who becomes the perfect and permanent deliverer. Do you know why? Because he changes us at the core of our The judges were limited and temporary, and they didn't change the core of their being. But the hope of the story of where we're heading is that only Jesus is the perfect and permanent deliverer that changes the very core of our being. And it's at the very heart of Christianity. If you want to know what the gospel is, it's not that the gospel tells me what's right and wrong and says, hey, Daryl Smith, do the best you can to live up to those standards. Because the reality is Daryl Smith's not going to live up to those standards. No, the gospel is there is someone who will come and will change your very nature by his presence and by his spirit. Not just a savior that takes away your sins and someday will take you to heaven when you die. No, he came to change the very core of our being. Do you understand what I'm saying today? So that we don't go through the cycle of stupidity in our lives, of insanity, of trying to do better, but continuing to fall back into sin and drifting away from God. It is Christ that comes to change us at the very core of our being. This morning I ask you to stand <clears throat> in our time of invitation today. <clears throat> uh, the pastor of First Baptist Church wants you to know I, I don't think there's any power in religion. And I think most people here would agree with me that um, we're not here to teach you some morals although that's part of it that's not the end of it 
No, the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to change the very core of your being, to change who you are, to reverse the infection of sin in my life, to reverse what happened in the garden. And only Jesus has that power. Uh, This morning, I don't know what the detail of your life is. Um, But I know you have to give him your all. You can't go part way. And today, it may be, there may be a step today to say, no, this is me. I'm all in. Maybe your step today is to say that I need Christ to come and change me. I've tried to get better. I've tried to do it on my own. I can't do it. I need Jesus to take over. It's your only hope. Brother Shane's going to lead us, and Brother Byron and I will be at the front as you have your decisions to make today.